Henry Wallace was President Franklin Roosevelt's vice president during his third term, 1941 to 1945. FDR then chose Harry Truman to be his vice president in the fourth and last term. In author Ben Steele's book, The World That Wasn't, Henry Wallace and the Fate of the American Century, he writes that Wallace loved humankind but was mostly vexed or bored by humans. Steele takes us through Wallace's life from Iowa farm boy to presidential candidate on the progressive ticket in 1948. Wallace preached the supremacy of human rights over property rights, yet excused the absence of human rights in Russia. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Book Notes Plus, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Ben Steele, how did Henry Wallace become vice president of the United States? Well, Henry Wallace um, was basically a member of what you might call at the time the Iowan agricultural aristocracy. Um, his uh, grandfather um, had founded a very influential farm journal called Wallace's Farmer, which we might liken to a publication like, say, Barron's in the financial community in the uh, 1980s, you know, a central reading, in this case, for, for people who were farmers, not just technical details of farming, but all the moral and political and economic opinions that should attach to farming um, during that period. Um, his father, uh, also a, a, a Henry, the firstborn son in the Wallace family was always a Henry, um, took over the uh, uh, paper after his grandfather died and eventually became agriculture secretary under Harding and Coolidge. So when Roosevelt was looking for uh, an agriculture secretary, um, Henry Wallace, the grandson, was a logical place to turn. He, the Henry Wallace of my narrative, um, also became editor of um, Wallace's Farmer, um, was a remarkably talented uh, agricultural geneticist, um, really self-taught even before he went to um, uh, college. He was experimenting with hybridizing corn and much of the corn that we eat today derives from his fascinating um, experiment. So he was a logical place to turn, but he was not a politician uh, and really never grew into the role of politician. You say that John Lewis Gaddis, professor, Yale, uh, I, ga I gather with you on the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, suggested that you should write this book. What was his reason? Yeah. So I thought I was a very unlikely person to write such a book. I'm a financial economist by um, training. Um, but two books ago, I had written an historical narrative of uh, on Bretton Woods. 
uh, on the Bretton Woods Agreement that created the IMF and the World Bank and the dollar-based international monetary system. And over the course of that research, I became fascinated with uh, early Cold War history because it turned out that Harry Dexter White, the Treasury representative who had been primarily responsible for the conference, was a major Soviet asset. And I have discovered fascinating things about him, uh, for example, using the FBI archives. I then decided to do another Cold War, Cold War economic story, a, a historical narrative on the Marshall Plan. Uh, and while I was researching that book, I did so, several pilgrimages to Yale to speak to Professor Gaddis about George Kennan, which was, who was, of course, a major biographical subject of um, uh, Gaddis. Um, and Gaddis had urged me to consider after doing the Marshall Plan, writing a political biography of Henry Wallace. Um, and his reasoning was that Wallace had become almost an iconic figure um, among um, idealistic, very smart young people around the United States. And one of the, the reasons, perhaps the main reason, was Oliver Stone, the documentary filmmaker, who way back in 2012 had um, uh, done what he would call a documentary, The Untold History of the United States, in which he argued that if Henry Wallace had kept his rightful place on the Democratic ticket in 1944 as FDR's vice president, um, that, of course, he would have become president when FDR died the following spring. Um, and uh, there would have been no Cold War. And Professor Gaddis was very concerned about this view among his students because he believed it to be extremely um, uh, inaccurate um, and was giving the wrong message about where the Cold War went to and went, came from and how history evolved from, from there. Um, anyway, once I finished the Marshall Plan, um, I really was itching to do uh, a biographical work, particularly based on this fascinating man, because what I did know about him um, was enough to get me very curious. But I knew I couldn't possibly write a book like this without using the Russian archives to find out what the story was on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Um, and although I hadn't planned to make great use of them, the FBI archives turned out to be very, very useful in my research. I should emphasize that I couldn't write this book today with the Russian archives being effectively closed, certainly to foreign researchers um, since the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. How did you find what you needed to find in the Russian archives? And what year was it that you went there? Well, um, I, um, when I was writing the Marshall Plan, I used a Russian archival specialist to send me back documents. I gave her um, very specific details about what I was looking for. Um, and she was able to find some extremely Im important documents. And we um, basically reprised that um, relationship in working on Wallace. You know, I would go through an episode of, of his life um, I had specific questions about what was going on at the Soviet, in the Soviet Union at the time um, uh, and what the archives would say on it. There are two main foreign policy archives in um, uh, Russia that I use, but she was sending me back those documents and they turned out to be an absolute uh, goldmine. Um, very disturbingly, uh, after the Russian invasion of 
Ukraine, she who's well into her 70s, um, had to flee the country because the work that she was doing for me and other Western researchers became retroactively criminalized. So very, very sad story. Where does she live today, can you say? Yeah, Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv. Yeah. Here is some audio about, a, I think it's about a minute, from a speech that Henry Wallace gave, just a little tiny excerpt, Hotel Commodore in New York in 1942. And you'll see why I wanted you to hear this and the people listening, and then you can follow up with uh, the Russia connection after we hear this. If we were to measure freedom by standards of nutrition, education, and self-government, we might rank the United States and certain nations of Western Europe very high. But this would not be fair to other nations where education has become widespread only in the last 20 years. In many nations a generation ago, nine out of 10 of the people could not read or write. Russia, for example, was changed from an illiterate to a literate nation within one generation. And in the process, Russia's appreciation of freedom was tremendously increased. Your reaction to what he just said? Yeah, um, this is uh, very typical of the things that Wallace said about the Soviet Union over the course of his um, uh, career. Um, it was also very typical of um, views um, among what you might call elements, elements of the liberal intelligentsia going back to the um, uh, 1920s, the aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution. And basically there was an element of the American um, liberal intelligentsia that believed that we could really set aside the extreme Bolshevik um, rhetoric and look at what's actually going on in, in Russia. And what they saw was um, a, a nation that was hungry for um, industrial and agricultural progress, um, uh, a nation that felt it had to catch up with the West and in particular the United States as fast as possible and often used extreme methods of getting there. For example, agricultural collectivization, which Henry Wallace um, thought was unfortunate, but very necessary. Um, but that these extreme methods had to be understood as being um, uh, a part of a, a much more positive uh, Russian dedication to what Wallace called economic democracy, spreading econo economic democracy. That is spreading prosperity to the great masses of the population. And Wallace and others who shared his positive view of Russia really fundamentally believed that these initiatives that the Russians were, were taking were being driven by experts. And Wallace believed passionately that economic um, uh, progress around the world had to be driven by experts. Now, in the United States, where we had this complicated democratic political machinery where we constantly had to compromise on things, made this very messy 
he was fascinated with the Soviet Union because, of course, they didn't have this messy democratic process and they could let the experts do their work. That was at least how Wallace saw things. Why did he think they had freedom? He did not believe that they had political freedom. He um, uh, equated um, this idea of economic um, democracy with a type of um, uh, freedom. That was the spreading of democracy to the, the, the working classes, the peasants, et cetera, et cetera, that would eventually uh, enable them um, to live a freer life. He believed that over time, um, Russia would evolve um, towards more political freedom as we had in the United States, but he was very critical of elements of political freedom in the United States. That is, he believed that our individualist ethos had been taken too far and that it naturally led to the catastrophe, for example, of the Great Depression, that we couldn't have this individualist ethos guiding a society develop, developing according to what was essentially planlessness. He believed that planlessness was irresponsibility. So he admired the Soviets very much in that they, at least in his view, had experts making national plans for the development of the country. Fascinated by the fact that he was a 5% tipper. And I bring that up because I want you to tell us what he was like personally. Yeah. So Wallace loved humankind, but humans not so much. Um, he, If he were alive today, um, I think he would um, be diagnosed with what we today call Asperger's syndrome. Um, Wallace was a genius when it came to studying things, inanimate objects, corn, chickens. I mean, he, he invented a breed of chicken that eats less and lays less eggs. It's much more efficient. But he never really understood um, uh, human beings. Um, he had dif great difficulty um, detecting duplicity. Um, and though he did talk quite a bit about the importance of serving the interest of humankind generally, and the phrase that he used was the common man at home and abroad, and he accomplished very much in this area. For example, in, in, in Mexico, he was instrumental in setting up a Rockefeller Foundation project to increase agricultural productivity in Mexico, which really had revolutionary effects. But when it came down to his personal interactions with human beings, for example, tipping in a, in a restaurant, he didn't seem to understand them and often didn't seem to have great empathy with them. What was his personal relationship with FDR? Um, it was a, an initially very um, uh, pragmatic. We could say um, Wallace at the time that um, uh, he was um, in, in contact with Roosevelt during the campaign in um, 32, um, was still a registered Republican. Republicanism was deep 
in his family's um, uh, history. He was somewhat skeptical about um, uh, FDR because Wallace's concerns were first and foremost about agriculture in the United States, and he was unconvinced that FDR really cared about um, uh, agriculture. Um, but uh, FDR very much appreciated the fact that um, Wallace was not the type of man to be confined by conventional thinking. Um, his good friend Henry Morgenthau eventually became Treasury Secretary um, under him, was such a conventional thinker, but Wallace wasn't. And FDR liked the fact that Wallace would be somebody who would experiment. Um, and um, throughout his um, time in Washington with FDR, FDR would really admire Wallace for his um, open mind, for his intellectualism. And the two shared a common interest in mysticism, um, believe it or not. But FDR always knew when to shut things off. That is, Wallace is going um, uh, too far. Um, and he was never concerned the way other major leaders in the Democratic Party were that Wallace might at some point really muck things up because um, FDR always believed that uh, uh, he was the government, particularly when it came to foreign policy. And if people under him had the wrong ideas, he could just ignore them in the most charming fashion. And that's pretty, pretty much describes how his relationship with Wallace evolved. Wallace did create problems for him over the course of his um, uh, four administrations, um, but he was typically able to uh, cover cover them up. And by the time we get into um, FDR's third and fourth term, Wallace actually becomes quite critical to shoring up his liberal flank. You know, he's the last major committed vocal New Dealer um, uh, in the government in the government. So he becomes, in effect indispensable, not just to FDR, but after FDR dies, to President Truman. Where was he educated? He went to um, uh, Iowa State College um, and studied um, uh, agriculture. Um, uh, but you know, he, he had academic interests, um, but he, his interests were fundamentally practical. That is, um, uh, how can we improve um, uh, farming um, on his own family farm in Iowa more broadly? Um, and then eventually he became uh, fascinated with um, the whole idea of improving agricultural technology literally around the world. I mean, he was uh, quite well read, for example, on the history of agricultural development in China. Um, and took a deep interest in um, how agricultural techniques were developing or not developing in the country. How many years was the agriculture secretary under FDR? Yeah, for the entirety of his first two terms. So that's from 1933 to 1940. After his four years as vice president, how long was he secretary of commerce? So he becomes um, secretary uh, of commerce. It's an enormously controversial um, nomination, and I tell the story of how he, he was barely um, confirmed um, in uh, early 1945. 
um, March of 1945, I believe. Um, uh, Roosevelt dies in April of 45. Um, Truman, um, who doesn't think terribly much of Wallace, it's, that's pretty much mutual between them, um, feels he needs to keep Wallace on again to shore up his um, uh, liberal flank and um, manages to, to um, keep him on despite Wallace's relentless attacks on his foreign policy until September of 1946 when he finally fires him after um, a speech that really um, sets off political alarms around the United States. Who was he married to? His wife was um, uh, named Ilo. Um, she um, really had a deep affection for what she considered the stolid aspects of his um, personality. Um, her friends were very much against her marrying him. They thought he was very strange. He had bizarre scientific um, diets involving eating animal feed and strawberries and things, things of that nature. He dressed very um, strangely. He talked very strangely. Um, but she, she, she really had an affection for the, what she saw as the genuineness of the man. Um, she was always very, very concerned, however, about um, his growing mystical Bent his in, his interest in things like uh, theosophy. She was convinced it was going to get him into trouble, and never really wanted his political career to go too far. She became terrified the first time um, she heard, not from her husband, but from an advisor of her husband. I think this was back around 1937 um, that he was um, considering running for president in 1940. I've got to bring up. 10% of your book was de was devoted 61 pages to, <laughs> to <laughs> I have to say, this was all new to me, so it was fascinating. Do you pronounce it Rorich? So in uh, my, my Russian pronunciation would be very bad. It was pronounced in the United States Rerich, and it was quite, quite similar to that in Russian. So his name in Russian was roughly Nikolai Rerich, and it became uh, anglicized, as it were, to Nicholas Rerick when he moved to New York in 1920. Before you get into it, I did notice that there still is a museum, yeah. Upper West Side of New York, what about 107th Street or something like that, in a yeah. townhouse. Wonderful. So, if, so if people listening get interested in what you're going to tell them, there's still some place to go to see his work, and it's also online. But anyway, tell us who he was and how. Wallace got involved with him and what impact all that had. Right. So um, the, the, um, this massive chapter on Nicholas Rarick was supposed to have been um, a few pages <laughs> in um, uh, a, a chapter on his time as agricultural secretary. But the material I found in, in Russia was just jaw-dropping. Um, and it took me about a year to write this particular chapter. It became the longest chapter in the book. So Nicholas Rerick um, was a, a first and foremost known as um, uh, an artist in Russia and a stage designer. Um, his um, 
most famous works are, are instantly recognizable for these luminous depictions of a, um, uh, an ancient primitive spiritual Russia. Um, he left um, St. Petersburg um, in 1916 during the turmoil surrounding the Bolshevik coup. Um, he lived for the next few years in the Nordic region in London and then in 1920 moved to New York. And he already had a pretty significant following in um, New York and around the United States. He um, immediately set, set off on a, a, a 28 city tour of the United States shortly after arriving in New York. Um, Wallace um, be, um, becomes first acquainted with him through um, a Russian agronomist in the United States named D Dmitry Borodin. In 1927, he goes to um, this new museum named after Rerich. Um, the original museum was much, much larger than what you see today on the Upper West Side. It was really a grand museum. Um, so he, in 1927, he goes to the museum uh, and becomes utterly transfixed in front of a Tibetan um, prayer mat that's in the lobby. Um, and the receptionist becomes deeply concerned, uh, alerts the vice president of the museum who comes down to speak to him to see if he's unwell. And he says, no, he was just experiencing vibrations. To make a very long story very short, um, he eventually establishes contact with um, um, uh, Rurik, who is not only an artist, but a, a major spiritual figure. He's a theosophist. He and his wife, Helena, have developed their own branch of theosophy, which they call Agni Yoga. Um, and they believe that the ancient um, uh, Mahatmas, the masters who lived many, many generations ago in and around Tibet, could communicate to the um, uh, chosen um, uh, divine truths. Um, and Helena, Nicholas's wife, was the main vehicle for those truths. Wallace became an absolute devotee of um, uh, Rerich and Agni Yoga. Um, over the course of his relationship with the Rerichs, he wrote over 200 um, letters that are really quite remarkable in style. They're very um, slavish and devotional. These became known as the guru letters, and they would come back to haunt Wallace throughout his career. What makes the story utterly fascinating is how it intersects with Wallace's politics. That is, in 1934, he appoints Rerich to head a seed foraging expedition in Central Asia um, to get drought resistance seeds for the Midwest of the United States. This is a cover um, for Rerich's true mission, which is to recreate the mythical Shambhala um, in Central Asia, taking parts of Manchuria, Mongolia, and Southern Siberia. So he wants to create essentially a new theocratic state. And Wallace um, not only knows about it, but is deeply supportive of it. Um, and basically tries to, he dupes Congress into um, funding this um, uh, expedition. Um, FDR is fascinated with mysticism, knows that Wallace and the Rerichs are interested in this, but doesn't take it 
very seriously. F FDR thinks, you know, this is this is just a, a harmless little obsession of theirs, but it's not going to go anywhere. But it blows up. Basically, Japanese military intelligence in the region and Soviet military intelligence become deeply concerned with what this man is up to. They start planting stories in the local and foreign press. It becomes a huge scandal, um, humiliates Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace, I then discovered, um, uh, got um, the IRS commissioner to go after um, uh, Rarick, slap him with a, a $50,000 um, uh, uh, tax uh, collection uh, order. Uh, Nicholas was never allowed to return to the United States nor the Soviet Union. So um, the expedition was disbanded and he and his wife Helena spent the rest of their um, lives in um, in exile in uh, India. And Wallace spent much of the rest of his career trying to dissociate himself from this venture. Who was Lewis Horch? So Lewis Horch was an indispensable early financial patron of um, Nicholas Rurik. Um, he provided um, very, he was a currency trader, um, but was very interested in um, Nicholas's spiritualism, but more interested in his, his art and how this could be monetized. So he contributed um, uh, over a million dollars of um, his own money to start uh, to construct the museum. He borrowed a lot more, um, but he wrote his various contractual agreements with Nicholas Rarick in such a way um, that whereas it would look like he was helping him, um, he set him up to be himself up to be in a position to profit from Rarick's success or to disengage entirely if things went in the wrong direction. Um, and in the early 1930s, particularly as the depression um, set in, this venality starts to take over. Um, Horch manages through FDR's um, mother, Sarah, um, Horch manages to, um, knowing that Sarah is very interested in spiritualism and Rarick makes contact with, with her um, in order for him to get direct contact with FDR. Um, so the two of them um, eventually start a meeting um, in um, 1934. FDR, of course, is um, he's interested in mysticism, but he's a very wily man. And I think he understands that this is a useful connection because it allows him to keep tabs on what Wallace is doing to make sure he won't go too far. Um, and um, Horch eventually um, basically takes over this rare cult. Um, he, um, uh, in 1935, as things start blowing up, in Central Asia, and these horrible articles come out about what Nicholas Rarick might be um, up to. He um, takes over the whole museum, takes over the art collection, assists Wallace in um, getting the um, IRS uh, after um, Rarick. And at one point in um, January of 35, he actually goes to the president 
and tells him that um, J Justice Sam Rosenman, who's very close to um, uh, Pre President Roosevelt, is going to be uh, adjudicating um, in a case to determine whether he can take over the museum. And FDR tells him, this is simple, I'll handle it. And Rosenman winds up deciding the case completely in um, uh, Horch's benefit. I'm not a, a, a lawyer myself. I'm certainly not a tax lawyer, but I did go through mounds of documents related to the case. And I must say, and it's, it's an extremely weak case. Um, Rarick looks like what he was, a man who simply wasn't interested in finances. And Horch used that to his, to his advantage. But he maintained a very close relationship to Wallace throughout his career. Wallace gave him um, uh, posts in the U.S. government throughout the 1930s and 40s. How visible was this story back in the 30s and 40s, uh, meaning the Wallace connection with Rarick? So it, it blew up in the summer of 1935 when articles came out in the Chicago Tribune and then the New York Times written by a Peking-based um, American journalist named uh, Powell. Um, and the article is just a classic um, piece of KGB disinformation. And I say that with great respect for the way the KGB does its job. Um, in this regard. There are clear elements of truth in it um, that Rarick um, obviously did have um, uh, political motives. He was not just um, foraging for seeds. Um, the American botanists who were uh, working under Rarick did fall out with him um, and they were recalled by Wallace, but there are elements of the story that are false, clearly false. For example, that the botanists had resigned. They hadn't resigned. They were recalled by Wallace. Um, that um, Rarick's son, George, who was on the expedition, um, uh, had been a czarist officer um, before the um, uh, revolution. He was 15 at the time that he left Russia. So there are clear elements of falsehood um, um, here. Um, so after that article comes out, the entire expedition um, uh, starts uh, uh, collapsing and, and the American public becomes familiar with um, uh, this story. Fascinatingly, since Wallace is not really implicated in what's going on, um, beyond the statement at the beginning of the article that he had um, uh, created the expedition, Wallace decides not to challenge any aspect of it, just um, condemns Nicholas Rarick for getting involved in politics, which um, he, Wallace, had supposedly known nothing about. Um, and as I said earlier, he really spends much of the, the rest of his career trying to disown his relationship with Nicholas Rarick. But I have to emphasize that this, the story I'm able to tell now really did require these Russian archival um, documents. If you go through um, all the um, biographical material that had been written about um, Wallace before my book, 
um, you'll see Wallace presented as um, being well-meaning but naive in that, you know, he appointed this man to um, uh, run a seed foraging expedition and he went off and did all this crazy stuff, poor Wallace. But that wasn't the story. Wallace was very much um, part uh, of Rarick's initiative to create uh, Shambhala. He contributed his own money to invest in a, um, uh, a cooperative, a, a big cooperative uh, economic venture that um, Rarick was initially going to uh, produce in Manchuria, but had to move it to Mongolia when, when um, the press turned against him in um, uh, Manchuria. Wallace tried to get um, Henry Ford to invest in um, Rarick's initiative. Ford turned him down um, uh, coldly. Um, Wallace got political tutorials from the young vice president of the um, uh, Rarick Museum about how Central Asia worked whether Mongolia was part of China and so on and so forth. They used code names for these um, uh, various entities and the people involved in the story. For example, um, uh, um, FDR's code name was the wavering one. Cordell Hull, the secretary of state, was the sour one. Um, Wallace's so-called esoteric name, uh, indicating his relationship to the cult, was Galahad. So what would it have been like if Shamb is there a place called Shambhala today? Um, no, there is not. And if there was and he was able to create it, what would life be like there? Um, he wouldn't have been able to create it because it would have set off World War II much earlier than it, it had been set off. Um, that is, the mission that Rarick was on was extremely dangerous. Manchuria was widely considered to be um, a, a geopolitical cauldron of intrigue at the time, um, with four major world powers contesting for influence and sovereignty in the region. You had Japan, China, the Soviet Union, and uh, Britain as well, because of its interest in um, uh, Tibet. Um, so if Rarick had gotten any further than he had, um, war would almost certainly have ensued, possibly, possibly between the Japanese and the Soviets, which was always a possibility. So did this, well, a couple of quickies there on the museum, who, who sponsors that museum today? Um, so, um, going back to, I believe it's the 1940s. 40s, if I'm um, correct, um, the, the, this new museum was established based on a, a small number of paintings that uh, had been um, uh, kept together, and they managed to get um, public support um, for it. So it survives today based on um, uh, donations and lectures and things like that. But you can, it, it's, it's actually a free museum today. But I should emphasize it's only a, a pitiful rel, um, um, uh, replica of what was originally there and the so-called master building, which is just a few blocks um, south on the west side, which you can still see today, which is a, a, a beautiful Art Deco building. Should I assume you've been there? Yes. And, and is it worth going to? I, I love it. Um, I, I, 
you know, I think Nicholas Rarick's art is is beautiful and it's uh, historically quite um, fascinating. It's a very small museum. I mean, you can easily see the whole thing in um, uh, an hour. Um, you won't get any understanding of um, uh, the political nature of what he was um, up to. You'll get a little understanding of his spiritual interests, not terribly much, um, but it will definitely give you a good sense of, of Rarick as an artist. How much of Wallace's ability to get money for Rarick was sold on the base from our government was sold on the basis that, as you say in the in the in the book, that he was go looking in China in that area for drought resistant grasses. And yeah. <clears throat> what does that mean, and why would we be caring at that time about drought resistant grasses? Right, because of the the creation of the dust bowl and the um, Midwest. So this was fortuitous um, uh, under. Um, Wallace at the Department of Agriculture was a man named Knowles Ryerson, who had for years tried through the department to get funding for a seed foraging expedition of, of some sort to look for drought resistant seeds to see if we could make um, the uh, Midwest less vulnerable um, to droughts. He was never able to succeed in getting the, the funding. Then it was um, suggested um, to him by Francis Grant at the Rurik Museum um, that Wallace might combine the interest of the department in looking for these seeds with um, Nicholas Rurik's interest in recreating um, uh, uh, Shambhala. And so Wallace takes ownership of this uh, initiative, um, gets Ryerson on board, uh, but then panics Ryerson by introducing him to Rarick and telling Rarick, uh, Ryerson that Rarick's going to lead this expedition. Um, uh, Ryerson is utterly appalled. He's convinced that Rarick is a, 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 a shyster. Um, and he, he goes and leaks this to um, State Department contacts. The State Department becomes extremely concerned with this idea. Um, and uh, Cordell Hall, the Secretary of State, never trusts Wallace again after this um, uh, initiative. It creates enormous tension between the State Department and the Department of Agriculture. Let me stop for a moment and ask you about yourself. Uh, where does the name Steel, S-T-E-I-L, <laughs> come from? Um, so um, my father, I suppose it would be about 15 years ago now, went looking on some genealogical site for long lost family. He was um, sure he had somewhere um, and uh, found that there was another part of the family he knew nothing about that pronounced the name Style. Um, uh, we pronounce it Steel. Um, uh, and um, through that part of the family, he got he got various family documents and found that it had originally been a Polish name, Stolowitzki, um, but the family was quite Germanophile. Um, and so um, a lot of family documents were in, in German. And so they changed the name to uh, Style when they moved to the United States. Where are you from originally? I'm from New York, but Long Island and 
particular. As you can imagine, being a product of Long Island suburbia, when I had to write on agricultural policy, I had to do some research because I could barely distinguish animal, vegetable, and mineral. Where did you go to school? Um, I did my undergraduate degree in economics at the Wharton School, the University of Pennsylvania, and then did my, my master's and my PhD in economics at Oxford. Have you taught? Um, no, I, I have lectured um, a lot, um, but uh, I've spent my whole career in think tanks um, in the 1990s at Chatham House, uh, otherwise known as the Royal Institute of International Affairs in uh, London, and then in 99 came to the Council on Foreign Relations, and I've been there since then. How would you describe to people who don't have any idea what the Council on Foreign Relations does or is or where it's located? What can you give us on that? Um, so the Council on Foreign Relations is a, a nonprofit uh, membership um, institution. Um, uh, it is not in any way related to um, the U.S. government or any any government. We don't take any money from um, uh, governments. Um, as I say, we're a membership um, uh, organization. We have members around the United States, and we have offices in New York which was the um, uh, original um, location since 1921, and um, in Washington. Um, part of the organization is what you would call a think tank, um, a research institute dedicated to the study of international relations and American foreign policy. What do you say to those uh, conspiracy theorists that say the CFR, <laughs> Council on Foreign Relations, uh, runs the world and is all a part of the corporate establishment uh, and that they really run the government. Well, if, if that were true, they've done a darn good job of hiding it from me for, for, all, for all these years. Um, you can understand where the original ideas um, perhaps came from because if you go back to, for example, World War II, that period that I've been um, writing about, Council members uh, were quite influential in their individual capacity, um, and they would get together at the, the council to discuss issues related to the development of uh, American foreign policy, um, produce um, their own reports um, that were naturally influential because the members were influential. Um, but the, the notion that the council as such was was running something no certainly not true um and today i should emphasize that there's you know the studies department today is a much larger part of the council than it was um generations uh, ago and it's completely separate from um the membership so you know the whatever the members interests are that doesn't have any influence over the conduct of for example my research back to my original question to you and that is why did uh fdr choose henry wallace to be his vice president how did he john nance garner was vice president for two terms right how, what happened to him and then how did did FDR engineer it, or did others come to him and suggest it that he be? Um, no, um, FDR definitely engineered it. So FDR's view was: Look, uh, I've done my George Washington standard two terms. 
Um, I've done my service. Um, I coexisted with John Nance Garner, a uh, Southern conservative, um, for, for two terms. It's my turn. If the country wants to draft me for a third term, he wasn't going to nominate himself. He said, if the country wants to draft me, they're going to have to take my choice as vice president. Um, Wallace was not his first choice. Wallace was not his second choice. Wallace was his third choice at best. Who were the first uh, two? Um, so Cordell Hull, um, you know, FDR said many different things to many different people, but the evidence really does um, suggest strongly that Cordell Wall, Hull was his first choice. Um, Jimmy Burns, Senator Burns, um, also a, a, a Southerner, but of a much um, uh, more intellectual internationalist outlook than John Nance Garner was his um, second choice. Um, supposedly, um, Burns had um, been eliminated um, uh, for religious reasons. There was a belief at the time that Burns would alienate Catholics in the United States because he was born Catholic but married a Protestant and then apparently converted to Protestantism afterwards. This would come back to haunt Burns again in 1944 when he was seriously considered. Um, and then Wallace was apparently a third choice. What we do know for sure is that um, FDR wanted a genuine internationalist as vice president. FDR knew we were headed into a very dangerous um, phase in world affairs, um, that war was, that the United States entering the war was a very distinct possibility. And so it was essential to him that he have um, um, uh, an internationalist on the ticket. But there were other attractions um, that Wallace had to him. Um, first of all, FDR was conscious of the fact that um, in, in the, the New Deal was no longer um, something that he could tend to. Um, that he would, he was first and foremost going to be a foreign policy president now. Um, Wallace was um, uh, by far the most visible vocal um, New Dealer um, around him at the time. So he would shore up the left flank of the um, uh, administration. Um, and it was believed that um, Wallace, being an Iowan, a farmer, uh, would help in the Midwest. And that didn't really turn out to be the case in the election because Dewey won 10 states, um, seven of them were in the Midwest. So by this time, the, the Midwest, the agricultural community is already becoming um, quite suspicious of Wallace. And when fast forward to 1948, when Wallace won, runs for, for president, he barely gets 1% of the vote in Iowa, his home state. Let me jump from FDR's selection in 1940 to 44 when he dumps him. How does that work? And you describe it, of course, in the book, how... Uh, how FDR operates under those circumstances. It's just a remarkable story, um, 1944. Um, I have read an incredible amount 
about what FDR said to many, many people about who he wanted and why he wanted it. And I still can't say definitively, this is what FDR believed. Um, however, he had been convinced by the leadership of the Democratic National um, Committee um, that Wallace was a liability, that La Wallace was way too far to the left, um, that he was going to be a, a vote loser, particularly in the South, which was beginning now to disconnect from the Democratic um, uh, Party. And in particular, they were concerned that he was much too close to the Soviets. Now, the reason why the DNC leaders were so concerned about Wallace remaining on the ticket is that they could see Roosevelt's deteriorating condition. Um, they really didn't believe that he was going to survive a fourth term. So they were quite convinced that who, who, whoever was vice president was going to ascend to the um, presidency. Of course, they were right in that regard. Now, um, FDR ultimately wound up endorsing four separate people in four separate ways for vice president. He created complete chaos at the um, 1944 Democratic Convention. So he, he endorsed Wallace in a very backhanded way um, that hurt Wallace and FDR knew that it would. He um, had a message read to the convention saying that um, um, uh, if he, FDR, were a delegate, he would vote for Henry Wallace. But of course, he was not a delegate. And he was confident that the, the delegates would weigh the pluses and minuses of the various alternatives and reach a good decision. And the convention took that um, as FDR's quite FDR way of saying goodbye, Henry Wallace. Um, he endorsed Jimmy Burns verbally um, several times and infuriated um, Burns by undercutting him each time he um, gave him his private reassurances. Uh, and he, uh, he endorsed um, William Douglas, the Supreme Court Justice, who had no following in the party. Uh, Wallace just, um, excuse me, FDR just liked him. Um, he said he was a, a, a poker buddy. Um, he was young and had a good, good head of hair, and that would help him against the Republicans in the fall. He actually said that. And then there was the man, of course, who was eventually nominated at the convention, Harry Truman. Uh, and he was the number one choice of the DNC leaders. And Truman had many characteristics that made him desirable. He was sort of in the South without being of the South. Um, that is, you know, he was seen as being acceptable um, uh, in the North. Um, he was acceptable to African-American leaders. He was acceptable to the uh, labor unions. He was inoffensive. But Southerners um, uh, considered him one of their own. Um, as well. He was considered um, a very re responsible senator. Um, he had um, headed the so-called Truman Committee during the war, which um, investigated the use of, of government funds and procurement and, uh, uh, and the like, and FDR very much respected him for how he 
um, uh, handled that. Um, and, and he was seen as being a, a, a safe pair of hands. Um, and the convention, as I describe in the story, was um, a wild open one, um, which went to ballots. Um, Wallace was leading after the first ballot, and then Truman won on the second um, uh, ballot. Uh, the DNC leaders had orchestrated things quite carefully to produce this result. But as you see from the story, it was not um, a, a situation that the DNC leaders were able to control. And at several times during the convention, it looked like it was going to go out of control and that Wallace might somehow skirt through. And that's why you mentioned earlier about Oliver Stone and the whole idea right. that had he been the vice president, the world would have been different after FDR died. Well, Stone, yes, and Stone and others have made claims that um, the DNC leadership was corrupt and that the um, delegates had been bribed to vote for um, Wallace in particular. And even David McCullough, the famous biographer of Truman, repeats these stories that supposedly the chairman of the delegation had been offered postmasterships and ambassadorships to vote for Truman. And I actually spent many weeks with um, my research associate at the council and an intern um, investigating these claims. First, we went through all the chairmen and said, right, does anybody become a, a postmaster or an ambassador under FDR or Truman? Um, postmasterships were ridiculous. That that was a 19th century sinecure. Um, it had become part of the civil service, um, you know, over six decades before. So that post wasn't available for patronage. Ambassadorships were more interesting. I went through all the chairmen, and only one um, had become an ambassador under um, FDR Truman, and he had voted against Truman. But then I decided to take it um, uh, much further. And I went through every single one of the 1176 delegates, which was not easy. Uh, we were making phone calls to little archives around the country to try to figure it out. And what I identified even shocked me. Um, I found one delegate, Richard Patterson from New York, we don't know his voting record because New York did not record the individual votes of the delegates who did become an ambassador under FDR and Truman, but I don't know how he voted. But no, all the others who became ambassadors under FDR or Truman voted against Truman. So this myth that Stone and others have perpetuated is completely without foundation. I have no doubt that the DNC leaders twisted arms, cajoled, urged, but um, really what they needed to do to convince the delegates was um, to persuade them that this was what FDR actually wanted. And at the end of the day, this is what FDR did in fact uh, authorize. So it was a clean convention. Before we finish, I must ask you about his time as Secretary of Commerce his relations with Harry Dexter White, you've written a lot about Harry Dexter White, and why there were so many so-called communists in that Commerce Department during the Truman years. Right. I should emphasize that, for the most part, these weren't people who were brought in by Henry Wallace. 
Um, they had been there long before. Um, but Wallace really empowered a number of, him, of them. His primary economic advisor um, at Commerce was a man named uh, Harry Magdoff, who was a longtime CPUSA member, a uh, member of the American Communist Party, and um, an active Soviet agent. Um, and so I, was, I had been very unhappy when I had read previous biographies of, of Wallace, because I couldn't un really understand his time at Commerce, or, you know, why he was taking the various positions um, he was. So what I did was go through um, uh, the FBI uh, archives. Since almost everybody under Wallace was having his phone tapped by the um, uh, FBI, you could find out that on such and such day, Wallace said this, and find out what his advisors were saying that morning or say the, the day before. And you found that they were, they were manipulating um, him, um, sometimes for the benefit of the Soviet Union when they would push Wallace um, into areas of foreign policy, sometimes in favor of the unions um, to promote um, uh, strikes um, Harry Magdoff wanted there, for example, to be a national rail strike, something that Truman was trying to um, um, uh, head off. And Harry Magdoff actually leaked to the Soviet Union's Wallace's very um, uh, private cabinet papers um, from September um, uh, 1945 uh, to do with American atomic policy. Um, so, um, you know, Wallace was very much being used by these um, uh, CPUSA members and Soviet agents and assets at Commerce, but he also deserves some blame in that um, he empowered them. Um, Harry Magdoff, um, for example, um, became one of um, Wallace's um, speechwriters. Um, and advisors during his 1948 um, presidential campaign. Um, Charles Kramer, who had worked for um, a Florida Senator um, Claude Pepper, was a Soviet agent and became uh, a speechwriter and advisor for um, Wallace during, during his um, uh, 48 campaign. What's really right, quite remarkable is that none of these people under Wallace were ever prosecuted. Uh, and I think there are two reasons for that. One is that the phone taps were inadmissible. Um, so for example, Harry Dexter White, who you mentioned, his phone was being tapped, but none of those um, taps were admissible in um, uh, court. And the second is that Hoover had bigger fish to fry. He was going after Henry Wallace. Um, now, Henry Wallace was never a Soviet agent. Um, he was very much used by the Soviet um, Union, but he was not a Soviet agent. But what is quite interesting is that if Henry Wallace had become uh, president, um, it is pretty widely accepted based on things that Wallace had said over the years that Harry Dexter White, who was a major Soviet asset, if not an agent, um, would have been his treasury secretary and Lawrence Duggan, who had been recruited by Soviet intelligence, supposedly he rebuffed them but never re reported that, would have been his um, uh, secretary of state. So throughout Wallace's time in government, he really is surrounded um, by people who are doing work for a foreign government, a hostile foreign government.
I'm going to give your time back to you in just a second. Two things. Uh, I was really surprised at near the end to find out that he died of Lou Gehrig's disease. Yes, he did. He did. And how, he did so very bravely, I must say. He was, how long did he have it before he passed? So um, he had it for a year and a half. Um, uh, he was um, climbing a pyramid in Guatemala, I believe it was in spring of um, 1964. Um, he was diagnosed the following November at the Mayo Clinic, and then he, he died a year later. And the last thing I want to ask you about uh, is that he voted for Eisenhower in 52. What? We don't know how he voted in, in 52. He never, he never said. Um, he made statements which were um, su supportive of both Stevenson and Eisenhower, but in 56, he openly <laughs> supported Eisenhower against Stevenson. Uh, people listening are going to have to buy the book to find out the rest of the story. <laughs> the name of it is The World That Wasn't, Henry Wallace and the Fate of the American Century. Ben Steele is our guest, Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.